Hello everybody and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Basics where we are going over the distinctions between the Catacomb Synod and other Lutheran bodies. What makes us different? What makes us tick? Now we are on the second to last recording on Philip Jacob Spanner's Pia Desideria, the second foundational text for pietism. The first one, of course, being Holy Scripture. With this book, Spener has kicked off the Pietist movement. And, of course, over the next 400 years or so, it would permutate and split off like any other Christian movement. But if we go back to foundational texts like this, we find pretty common sense solutions to problems. The first solution he had to the corrupt conditions of the Lutheran Church was, everybody read your Bibles. Let's get a love of Holy Scripture going. Second solution, let's remind everybody about the spiritual priesthood, the universal priesthood of all believers in Christ Jesus. And then, for today's recording... He's going to be getting into solutions number three and four, which will anger a whole lot of modern Lutherans, both on the right and left. Oh my goodness, does it have some potential to anger some people. Let's just jump right in. Section three, he says, connected with these two proposals, that is, spreading the knowledge of scripture and reminding everybody about the universal priesthood, is a third. The people must have impressed upon them and must accustom themselves to believing that it is by no means enough to have knowledge of the Christian faith. For Christianity consists rather of practice. Our dear Savior repeatedly enjoined love as the real mark of his disciples. John 13, verses 34 and 35, 15, verse 12, 1 John 3, verse 10 and 18, 4, verses 7 and 8, uh, verses 11 through 13 and verse 21. In his old age, dear John, according to the testimony of Jerome in his letter to the Galatians, was accustomed to say hardly anything more to his disciples than children love one another. His disciples and auditors finally became so annoyed at this endless repetition that they asked him why he was always saying the same thing to them. He replied, because it is the Lord's command and it suffices if this be done. Indeed, love is the whole life of the man who has faith and who through his faith is saved, and his fulfillment of the laws of God consists of love. Let's reread that last sentence here in this paragraph. It's important. Love is the whole life of the man who has faith, and who through his faith is saved, and his fulfillment of the laws of God consists of love. Now, there are going to be a lot of misconceptions about that because in the modern era we think of love as a good feeling or some sort of generalized good will. When the scriptures talk about agape love, it is a verb to will the good of the other for their own sake. This is the bulk of the Christian life, to be certain. 
and somebody who is saved will love. That is how this works. Christians love one another because they have saving faith in our Lord Christ. This isn't going to be the gentle-looking, uh, doormat kind of love that is presented in circles today. Our culture loves that kind of love, but this is real love, agape love that we're talking about here. So much so that when you read 400, 500-year-old texts, it was so wrapped up in the concept of action that oftentimes you can see charity or love swap it out with good works, and the text retains its meaning. Let's do this here with the sentence, and we're all going to understand what he means better from there. Indeed, good works is the whole life of the man who has faith, and through his faith is saved, and his fulfillment of the laws of God consists of good works. By talking about love in this way, Spanner is saying, you want to solve a whole lot of the problems in the Lutheran church? Preach the third use of the law. Preach what Christians do because they are saved. Preach what God tells us to do and why we do it, rather than avoiding that because you have knowledge of the gospel and you think that that suffices. If you want Lutherans to start doing good things and cleaning up their act, you have to tell them, we need to do good things and start cleaning up our act. This is why all of the sermons in the Catacomb Synod are going to include something about the third use of the law. God expects things from us. Does that earn our salvation? No. Is this us denying sola fide? No. But nonetheless, God commands it, we need to do it, because he saved us. Now, the deacon chat had some questions regarding the latter part of this short section, and it centers around how we treat our enemies. So I'm going to read what Spanner says, and we're going to clarify some things. Regarding loving our neighbors, he says, if they are offended, they should especially be on their guard. Not only that they refrain from all vengefulness, but also that they give up some of their rights and insistence on them, for fear that their hearts may betray them and feelings of hostility may become involved. In fact, they should diligently seek opportunities to do good to their enemies in order that such self-control may hurt the old Adam who is otherwise inclined to vengeance, and at the same time in order that love may be more deeply implanted in their hearts. So, we are told, love your enemies. But, the moment we hear that, we imagine the skinny jeans evangelical pastor who says, if somebody robs your house, rapes your wife, and sets your dog on fire, you should feed them, forgive them, insist that the police don't lay charges against them, and, you know, give them a room in your house. In fact, just sign the title deed away, because that's what Christians are supposed to do. 
that is not what Spanner is getting at. My goodness, the man was a theologian, a doctor of the church. He was no fool. Christians are called to love both their neighbors and their enemies. They are not called to be masochists who hate themselves. We are not called to be limp-wristed losers. But at the same time, we are called to love our enemies. Not as much as we love our neighbors. What do I mean by this? Christian love, agape love, consists of concentric circles. You have the greatest commandment in all of scripture saying you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul. You love God above all else. He's number one, center of the circles. Then you as a husband are called to love your wife as Christ loves the church. No other human being on planet earth may receive the kind of love that you have for your wife. After all, Christ does not have more than one bride. Then you love your family. You are still called to love your first neighbors, your father and mother. You are still called to love your children, the small little itty bitty neighbors inside of your home. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's pretty self-explanatory. Then you get to your enemies, where Christ does tell us to love our enemies. Scripture says, bless and do not curse. What does this look like? Well, for 2,000 years, the church never had a problem distinguishing between the personal enemy and the public enemy. The personal enemy, you must forgive immediately. As soon as you become aware that they've sinned against you, you need to forgive them and give up any right you had to personal vengeance against them. You do not want to turn yourself into a malicious person because Ephesians 4 tells us just repel, expel any notion of malice from within your heart. Christians don't do revenge. So, your personal enemy, the guy that knows your name, he is the one that you got to love. And by that, we mean you do not get revenge on them. You still pray for them. If they are in need, well, it might be a good idea to fulfill that need. But if somebody breaks into your house and tries to kill your wife or something like that, you still need to love your wife more than the guy that just broke into your house, and you need to defend her with the use of violence if necessary. This is most certainly true, and Spanner is not denying this. After all, this is the guy who grew up around like the Thirty Years' War, well accustomed to violence. And guess what? He picked a side. The Lutheran side. The correct side. He's not denying that sometimes that's gotta happen. But, we do need to understand the distinction between a public enemy, like warfare, if somebody has declared war on you, or if a public figure has said he hates all people of a certain group, and the private enemy that knows your name and has singled you out to do bad things to you. Bill Gates might hate my guts. He probably does. He doesn't know my name. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't really care to know. He hates me as a category, not as an individual. That's different. That's a public enemy who should be resisted. I dislike and oppose North Korea as a category. 
if I meet a North Korean man working at a gas station and he's got a little Juche tattoo on his shoulder or something like that, I'm not going to hate him. Yes, maybe he is among those that I would consider a public enemy, but this is one individual who in this moment is my neighbor. I will be respectful and polite and buy my Slurpee and then go home. These distinctions never bothered Christendom. Like, nobody in the Battle of Vienna said, Oh no, we just need to let them win. Oh, these Turks just need to win these Ottomans here. We're not loving our neighbor or our enemy with this by fighting them back. Oh, this is so bad. There was one group that did. They were the Anabaptists. And they rightly were expelled from polite society for earnestly wishing that their neighbors would die at the hands of the Ottomans. But with that distinction being made, you, dear Christian, must love your enemy. You, dear Christian, must do good works. That is the third use of the law, and we at the Catacomb Synod are going to preach it when the text calls for it. We are going to tell people what to do, because that's what the Bible does. We must do so. Period. End of story. And yes, we must love our enemies. There are so many times in which somebody discovers the truth that love your enemies does not mean submit to all of your enemies, and then they never talk about loving their enemies. They see understanding that distinction as carte blanche permission to hate their enemies and never love them. God forbid we should ever be like that. We must preach the entire counsel of God. And speaking of that, we move on to section 4, which is going to make people even angrier. I hope that you are not among those ranks. Dr. Spanner has some thoughts about disputation, you see. He says, related to this is a fourth proposal. So related to love and good works and loving both neighbor and enemy, according to the concentric circles. He says, we must beware how we conduct ourselves in religious controversies with unbelievers and heretics. We must first take pains to strengthen and confirm ourselves, our friends, and other fellow believers in the known truth, and to protect them with great care from every kind of seduction. Okay, so everybody listening to this says, yes, I want Lutherans to be Lutheran. I want somebody to understand, hey, there's no home for you over in the Reformed churches. Come on. Hey, listen, you don't want to go back to Rome. I know somebody online told you, submit to Rome. And they had a little Dark Age edit or something that looked cool. And they're being seduced into it. And we want Lutherans to stay Lutheran. Yes. Okay, nobody has a problem with that. But then he says... Then we must remind ourselves of our duty toward the erring. We owe it to the erring, first of all, to pray earnestly that the good God may enlighten them with the same light with which he blessed us, may lead them to the truth, may prepare their hearts for it, or, having counteracted their dangerous errors, may reinforce what true knowledge of salvation in Christ they still have in order that they may be saved as a brand plucked from the fire. And he connects this with the three petitions in the Lord Prayer. We want all of those people who disagree with us 
Uh, we want God to hallow his name in them, to bring his kingdom to them, and to accomplish his gracious will in and for them. This is most certainly true. How many of you do that? How many of us do that? Do we pray for those who oppose us, whether that is denominationally or for non-Christians, that they may come to the truth? Do we pray fully for everybody, the entire pleroma of all humanity, do we pray that they will come to the truth? Or is there a part of us that wants some people to go to hell? Oh, I've seen it, and I, I dislike it. We take the concept of the public enemy, and our anger makes us lose any and all goodwill that should be there for them. Beloved, the best way to kill an enemy is to see them turned into your friend. <laughs> because the man with the name enemy towards you is no more. He is now a man with the name friend. Now, I can't accomplish that personally in every single heart of everybody that disagrees with me, but I do pray that all of my enemies will become Christians and they won't be my enemies anymore. This is a godly prayer. Now, you can also pray imprecatory prayers towards them. You can also pray that God will stop them. You can pray that God will end their reign of terror or whatever. Yes, absolutely. There is no contradiction there. I don't care what some well-meaning skinny jeans dude says. But we need to watch ourselves, especially when interacting with somebody in an opposing camp. Spanner writes, especially should we beware of invectives and personal insinuations, which at once tear down all the good we have in mind to build. If you are interacting with somebody, perhaps debating with somebody, perhaps answering a theological dispute, you can't just go around insulting people. Sorry, you can't. Don't go after the ad hominem. Somebody says, submit to Rome, and you call them a stupid idiot and tell them to stop talking to you. Is that productive in any way, shape, or form? Now, you can by all means do polemics against their church, their denomination. I have no problem when things get heated in some discussion with a Calvinist doing some polemics, saying, listen, I don't want anything to do with your control freak theology. I don't want anything to do with a theology that makes stuff up, says it's true, and then reads it into the Bible and then proclaims sola scriptura to the entire world. If things get spicy, by all means, hurl invectives at the theology, but not at the man. This is somebody for whom Christ died. Now, is there a distinction between people that you're discussing these matters with and an out-and-out -out heretic with some authority over other people? Sure, I stand by Luther's comments concerning Pope Fardass. I stand by comments concerning Joseph Smith as a disgusting, despicable human being. He has an office, and I'm attacking the man in the office because he should know better. But when we interact with somebody and we immediately start hurling weird accusations or insulting the person when we could be actually convincing them, we're not doing any good. 
And I'm not certain that any movement predicated on just insulting, attacking, and accusing people is going to thrive, because it's not standing for anything. Spinner writes, In the second place, we must give them a good example and take the greatest pains not to offend them in any way, for this would give them a bad impression of our true teaching, and hence would make their conversion more difficult. When he says the word offend, think sin. Spanner doesn't tell you to be winsome. Spanner is not telling you to be a David French-style jellyfish. No, Spanner is telling you, don't be a piece of garbage. Don't sin against these people. Don't slander them openly in violation of the Eighth Commandment. Don't steal things from them. You should live a clean life so that when we want people to come over to our side of things, they can't say, yeah, but I saw your moral failings. I don't care what you have to say. <laughs> you see, guys, if you want to win, saying I'm right over and over and over again isn't enough. And at the Catacomb Synod, our deacons have been instructed with this, that being right is not enough. We must be Christians that mean it. And if we're going to be Lutherans that mean it, we need to have lives consistent with our teachings. This is why he says, To this should be added in the fourth place, a practice of heartfelt love toward all unbelievers and heretics. A proper hatred of false religion should neither suspend nor weaken the love that is due the other person. Let me put it to you this way. In religious disputes that we have with non-believers or heretics or subversive teachers, God knows I've had to deal with too many of those, in disputes with those people, what do you actually hate? You hate the doctrines of the devil that are trying to worm their way into the church. You want the devil to be defeated in this instance. If you dig in your heels and say, no, I hate these people and I'm going to let them know. I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. I want them to burn in hell. God doesn't like that, but I want that to happen. You know what's going to happen? They're going to stay over in their camp because now they hate you. And Satan wins. The devil's goal is to drag as many souls to hell as he can. And in a dispute with people, if you are going to be so inhumane as to sin against them in the midst of that conversation, and you are not going to do anything to actually reach out to them, guess what? They're not going to listen to you. Satan wins. His false teaching that he's trying to insert into the church, guess what? It did its job. People are damned and you helped. Because you did not want to love the individual who was in error. We can be firm. We can be honest. We need to stand up for the truth as Christians. Again, this is most certainly true. I don't want anybody being quote-unquote winsome. No, I want strong Christians that are willing to tell it like it is, but you should have a point to telling it like it is, which is leading people to repent, to change their mind, to hold to the truth. He says, how often the disputants themselves are persons without the spirit and faith, filled with carnal wisdom drawn from the scriptures, but not instructed by God. 
For all knowledge which we take from the scriptures with our own natural powers in merely human efforts without the light of the Holy Spirit is a carnal wisdom. Else we would have to say that reason is capable of divine wisdom. How often is the principle of such disputation not investigation and discovery of truth, but rather obstinate assertion of what has once been proposed, reputation for a shrewd intellect and for ingeniousness and conquest of an opponent, no matter how this is achieved. We're supposed to be helping the kingdom of God here. We want the kingdom of God to be built, to grow everything. It's going to come. We say, thy kingdom come. God's kingdom is going to show up whether we do anything or not, but we want God's kingdom to come among us, and we want to be there helping through evangelism, through the right kind of disputation. If you refuse to love your opponent, you're not building the kingdom of God. You're just helping the devil damn people. And I get it. I totally do. For everybody in the right wing of Lutheranism... We discover the truth, we get mad, we forget that we're not supposed to let the sun go down on our anger, and we decide to start stewing until this turns into malice. And all that matters is quote-unquote winning. It's not God's victory that we want. We want our personal satisfaction, our catharsis, our moment of victory, right? Our revolution, so to speak. But if Christ isn't there... It's just carnal. Just as all disputing is not praiseworthy and useful, so proper disputation is not the only means of maintaining the truth, but requires other means alongside it. To his opponents, now Spainer understands it. He understands where a lot of people are coming from too. He says, they, the uh, bad disputers, Therefore, regard true confession of faith merely as a means of strengthening their own ecclesiastical party, and not as an entrance upon a life of zealous future service of God. If the glory of God is to be properly advanced, disputation must be directed toward the goal of converting opponents and applying the truth which has been defended to a holy obedience and a due gratitude toward God. I'm right is not enough. It is not enough to be right. You must have a will that is aligned with God's will and seek zealously to obey him. The glorious sayings of Christ belong here. If any man's will is to do his will, namely the fathers who sent him, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. John 7 verse 17. Here our Savior says that nobody is really assured in his heart of the divine truth of his own teaching unless the will is also there to do the Father's will. And so it is not a matter merely of knowledge. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He who has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 8, verses 31 and 32, and John 14, verse 21. We need to align our wills with the Father's will. And he loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten Son to die for us, for our enemies, indeed for the entire world. 
if we engage in religious disputes, we need to have the attitude that God had. He wants these people to repent. He does not will that any should perish. He says that. That's scriptural. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Neither should we. We have to keep that attitude in mind, even if we have to get firm and unwinsome with people. We have to, have to, have to do this. Now, one of the deacons in the chat was talking with me about a difference between religious disputes and civic disputes. I 100% agree. We are entitled to make disputation about civic matters, and it's going to get a lot spicier there. By all means, we should be saying mean things to bad people in the civic sphere. But in a religious sense, when we are doing evangelism, when somebody says, submit to Rome or burn, or you Lutherans are all a bunch of antinomians, blah, 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 blah. We need to keep in mind that, yes, God still loves that guy that's coming at you insulting your faith. And so you need to love him too. Align your will with God's will and seek what the Father wants. But when it comes to condemning a car thief, when it comes to condemning a pedophile, or some dude out there who is openly in an office in the church, using his person and using his office to directly sin against Christ, yeah, we need to condemn those guys openly. Maybe not slander them. There's no use and no good that comes out of that. But I'm still going to call the Pope Pope Fartass. I'm going to still call false teachers out for what they are and what they do, including bodies full of and captured by false teachers, including most of what is now called confessional Lutheranism in the United States today, in the West at large, honestly. Yeah, I'm going to say that. But I still have to love the people being led astray by these false teachers. 100%. We need to love them. And we need to be patient with them, especially because somebody who is in error necessarily doesn't understand that they are in error. Anyway, if we wanted to sum all of this up, because some people are going to go, is this another one of the pastor's weird rants? Let's summarize. We need to be preaching the third use of the law. That's what the Catacomb Synod is going to do. We are going to teach people to love, according to the concentric circles that Scripture teaches us to have. And in disputes, religious and otherwise, we must come at things with an attitude of goodwill towards those who are in error. We must see their good for their sake here, rather than allowing our hearts to be turned to malice. This is why the Very Lutheran Project is a thing. We are building a catacomb synod that takes people out of bad churches and puts them in good house churches where their spiritual needs are being met without subversion. And by all means, I want these institutions that oppose us to repent. I'm not going to shed any tears if they end up being bled dry and emptied out and abolished because of their inability or refusal to budge. We are doing something rather than just sitting there condemning, condemning, condemning. And next week, we're going to go ahead and finish up the Pia Desideria. We're going to talk about that and how it applies to the Catacomb Synod. 
And it's going to be a little interesting because it applies to ministers like yours truly. <laughs> but until then, we will see you during that time. Amen and amen. <laughs>